So if you're a new syndicator and you want to get into this and you want to be able to raise capital for your deals, you need to create what I call a sample deal deck, right? So you need to create a deal deck of what a deal would look like if you had one, right? So you can create that. Like, what are the returns going to be? Where's the market going to be focused? Like, what's the important numbers that a passive investor needs to know about? You create this deal deck and then you send it out to all your contacts, everybody in your network. Welcome to the Real Estate Mindset Podcast, hosted by Eric Nelson and brought to you by Wild Oak Capital. Eric is a real estate investor, business owner, and performance coach. Throughout this series, Eric explores the mindset behind why certain investors are so successful and how we can learn from their achievements and failures. Eric asks the tough questions around the habits, discipline, mindset, and more required to achieve the most ambitious goals. Thank you for being here and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Eric Nelson. And I have an awesome guest, Camilla Jeffs. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Eric. I'm super excited to chat with you tonight. Yeah, this is awesome. So standard podcast thing is if you could give our listeners you know, your background, what you've been up to, and then what led you to real estate. Perfect. Well, I got involved in real estate fairly young. So I was still in college and bought my first property as a house hack. And so I bought a property that where lived in the top and we rented out the basement. And that was kind of my first little introduction to real estate. And the reason I did it was not because I was, you know, a smart college student. <laughs> no, it was because I was a poor college student and had no money. But I still wanted to live in a nice place. And I figured out this way to be able to do that. So I, I could rent it out. So I ended up only paying about $150 a month to live there in a house with the pool. And it was awesome. And that gave me the itch for real estate. And I really started thinking about what do I do next and how do I you know, continue to acquire properties? So from then, we started using the live-in flip method where you buy a fixer-upper, you move in, you fix it and live there for about two years. Then you move out and either rent or sell. And that was a great strategy for someone who didn't have very much money, which was me and my husband. <laughs> we had hardly any money. But it worked out really great for us. And we could buy, we could get a new property every one to two years. And we acquired a bunch of doors that way. Well, after we did th that, we thought, well, let's let's try a multi-family, like a small multi. So we picked up a fourplex and that went pretty well. But we got to the point where we were managing everything ourselves. We were like the epitome of DIY. We mowed the lawns, fixed the toilets, managed the tenants, did all the background checks, you know, just everything. We took the 2 a.m. phone calls. And I got to the point where I was really tired. Also, by that time, I had five children. So it was kind of a lot to be managing all these properties and managing five kids. And so we decided that we did a different way and we wanted to continue to scale because we totally believed in real estate. We knew real estate was the best way to build wealth for our family. And so we were trying to figure out what's next. And I always had on my vision board, buy an apartment complex. But unfortunately, apartment complexes costed millions of dollars and my bank account did not have millions of dollars in it. So I was trying to figure out, well, what do we do? How do we even do that? And I learned about the power of partnering. And that was kind of an aha moment for me that, oh, you mean I don't have to do everything myself? 
that's pretty neat. And so started partnering with others. And today I own several large multifamily properties along with other general partners. You know, and we invest passively as well in them. And so we liquidated our single family and small multi portfolio and we just put all of our money into large multifamily because it is amazing. Yeah, no, this is so funny because I want to dive in a little bit, but we have kind of a similar track. So I did the same thing. I bought a house at college, house hacked it, didn't even know what I was doing. I was just like, let's try it and rent it out. And I bought it with my brother. Anyway, so it was kind of a cool technique. And then similar story, my wife and I started kind of acquiring properties slowly. I mean, it just takes a long time and it takes a long time to get the down payment or do something creative. And so we have a similar track there. And so when you said liquidated, like after you got your first maybe multifamily, you realized that this works. I mean, what was the timeline when you liquidated kind of the smaller stuff? So we actually liquidated the smaller stuff right before I went back to school to get my MBA. So I decided to get my MBA. So we liquidated the small stuff so we could cash flow the MBA. And then we invested passively into large multifamily first. So we could really learn about it. And then I just got the itch. I've always been an active investor and and actively involved in real estate and I love it. And so then I decided to really join in on the general partner side. Cool. So I I love talking to people about being an LP first. So describe what your experience was like. I mean, because I've never done that, to be honest. And I think there's a lot to be said about the learning process, which is kind of what you mentioned. It's like you learn the ins and outs, what it looks like to be a passive investor. Can you describe what that was like to invest with someone, kind of trust your money and then then like the lessons learned? Well, to be honest, it's a little bit terrifying. (laughs) Because <laughs> I I was a little bit terrified by it because again I DIY I mean everything that we bought was our own money you know and we had never partnered with anyone we'd kind of been investing you know privately and quietly we're not you know super extroverted people and so we just kind of been doing our own thing but then when I decided okay to do multifamily it's partnership so we have to figure out how to get out of the DIY mindset and get into a more partnering mindset. And then as a passive investor, right, you're investing just your money and you, you're full on trusting the general partners to take care of the asset for you. So I had to be prepared and be okay with losing all of that money, right? Like what's the worst thing that can happen? You lose all that money. And so when I was calculating my risk and, and you know, just looking at the risk profile for it, I was looking at the deals, I was looking at the markets, and I was looking at the sponsors. Because as a passive investor, really, those are the three things. And that was the wrong order. Sponsors first, right? You look at the sponsors first, you need to vet the sponsors, make sure you trust them, because they are the ones who will make or break the investment, right? Second thing is market, okay? Market second, where is the property located? Is it in a good location? Because I learned in all my investing, like I just posted you know, a story on LinkedIn today. It was all about the worst investment that I ever made. And the reason it was the worst and the reason it lost us so much money was because we chose the wrong location. We bought it just because it was cheap, that it was absolutely awful investment. And then third is the actual deal itself. So do the numbers on the deal make sense? Are they going to be a good investment? And so if you invest in that order, if you prioritize your risk assessment in that order, that really helps you as a passive investor. 
I made sure to meet, I wanted to meet the general partners, but that was back before you know COVID struck. And so there was no like Zoom meeting, but Zoom meetings are good. So if you want to invest passively, you, you should probably set up a call with the sponsorship team or at least someone from the team so you can understand them. And then really it was just trusting that real estate is a great investment, right? Like it's the best investment on the planet. The advantages of investing in a multifamily over a single family are huge because you have that economies of scale. In the single family, if someone moves out, your income goes to zero. But in multifamily, one person moves out, hardly makes a dent in your income. So there's just so many safety and protective measures in the asset class itself that I felt comfortable. But I did you know, have a little anxiety as I hovered my mouse over hitting that wire transfer in for that first $50,000 <laughs> investment. It was a lot of money. And I'm like, well, hope this goes well. And it's going well. Okay. So are you still investing in that deal? Sounds like. Yeah. Yep. Still in okay. that deal. Very cool. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned. So I guess if you're a passive investor, I mean, what were some lessons that you learned or what were some things that, you know, you took away from being on the LP side before you decided to be a general partner? You know, I think investing as a LP first has really helped me as a GP because right now as a GP, my specialty is in raising capital. And I actually specialize in the first-time passive investor. So teaching and educating the first-time passive investor. So having gone through that journey myself of trying to figure out, well, what do I know? And you know, I thought I knew a lot about real estate because I had done all this investing in like single-family and small multis. But large multifamily is a different animal. They speak a different language. There's like... NOI. Well, what does that mean? I didn't really use NOI with my single family homes and stuff. So it's kind of a different language and a different way of talking. I mean, even the term syndication, what does that even mean? The first time I heard that, I felt like an idiot because someone was talking to me like I should know what that word means. But you don't. If you're a first-time passive investor, it's a foreign term to you. And so I think it's really helped me to be able to simplify the process and to educate and teach and really focus on that education and that teaching to the first-time passive investor so that they feel you know, as comfortable as they can feel. You're never going to be 100% comfortable to invest your money first time in one of these deals. There's just the nature of it. like It's new. right? And whenever we face something new, sometimes our brains want to run away from it and be like, no, no, protect. Don't go it. Don't do it. But if you're educated, you feel a lot more comfortable. Yeah, that's such a good tip. I mean, I think really powerful to, to kind of take the time to educate people. So let's kind of make that transition. So you, you said you specialize in capital raising. You know, obviously that's a challenge for lots of people. You might find the deal, might find a good partnership, might even have a good property manager, might be kind of ready to go and then come time for the capital, that could be a big hurdle. So I guess if you don't mind, let's dive into that. So let's go through a handful of tips. Like what are some things aside from education, which I love by the way, so things that you can do that will help, you know, if you're doing your first indication or something, what are some tips you can give to someone to raise some capital? Great question. If you want to raise capital, so tip number one is you need to have warm investors before you have a deal. And sometimes investors are like, well, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. What do you need first, a deal or investors? And in my mind, you need to have investors first getting warm, especially because Sometimes investors, it takes them a while to understand the process. Like we talked about, they need to have that time to be educated. You can't just throw a deal at a cold investor and be like, hey, invest in this because they don't have time to build a relationship with you. They don't have time to understand the asset class 
or you know the numbers, what do the numbers even mean? They need that time. So my favorite tip is as you're getting into it, so if you're a new syndicator and you want to get into this and you want to be able to raise capital for your deals, you need to create what I call a sample deal deck, right? So you need to create a deal deck of what a deal would look like if you had one, right? So you can create that. Like, what are the returns going to be? What is the market going to be focused? Like, what's the important numbers that a passive investor needs to know about? You create this deal deck and then you send it out to all your contacts, everybody in your network, and you tell them, hey, I'm so excited about this new thing I'm doing in real estate. And it's just amazing. Here's these multifamily apartments. We can invest as a group together. Don't say the word syndication. Just get rid of that word. Just talk about it as a group investment. And we can all pool our money and buy this bigger asset and share in the returns. It's really awesome. I'm looking at deals like this. If I brought a deal like this to you, would you be interested in investing? So then that person would say, yeah, sure. Or no. Or they ghost you, right? It is what it is. <laughs> and so the people who express an interest, even if it's just like lukewarm, well, maybe, right? You add them to your investor database. And now you have this database of people who are interested in a deal that you may bring to them. And you need to feed that database. And you need to feed it by constantly giving them educational materials or talking about, hey, I, I flew to this market and I went and I met with brokers and here's what I'm doing. And just tell them about the activity that you're doing. You don't need to email them every day. That's a little excessive. <laughs> Maybe once a month, you send them some more information just to keep them warm and make sure that they're staying educated and up to date so that when a deal does come and you actually have a deal, you have a pool of warm investors who are ready to invest in your deal. And that's how you really set it up to be able to raise your capital. Yeah, I love the tip of the sample deck because it does actually paint a really clear picture or clearer picture to people who are becoming warm. A couple of tips I hear would be like, start posting on social media long before you have a deal. Mm -hmm. Like create exactly content. I love the education piece. So, you know, for me, it's, that's so big is to be educated one long before you find a deal. I mean, the first step of your syndicator, be educated. If you're a limited investor, exact same thing, get educated. Cause then, you know, when you go to make that investment, you'll be much more comfortable, much more understanding of what's going to happen, what it looks like. So I love that. Do you have any tips on the education piece? So let's say you're starting out, maybe you don't know that much. I mean, what are some kind of tips to get that education sort of started for your investors that you're becoming warm? As a passive investor? Well, I guess either way. I mean, I was kind of asking the question for a general partner. Like, let's say you're, you're starting out and you're, you know, getting these investors, what you're calling warm, warmed up, right? So like, what's some yeah. material that you can do or what's some tips that you can give to someone starting out that they can say, okay, yeah, now I can give some materials. That makes sense? Yeah. So, I mean, posting on social media is a big one. Sometimes you can refer. So what I've done with some investors is I've you can write blog posts, right? And create your own website and then write some blog posts and put that information on your website so that your investors can re, you can refer them to that. For example, you could write a blog post about what is an accredited investor? What does that even mean, right? Accredited versus sophisticated and why is that important? So you write a post about that with all the information that they need. And then whenever someone asks a question about, well, what's an accredited investor? You say, oh, go and read it right over here, right on my own website. 
Now, if you don't have that, then you find it, you borrow someone else's, right? And you can refer them to other things. So have in your back pocket a couple of podcast episodes. You know, So I know as investors, we love listening to podcasts. So have a bunch of podcast episodes at the ready to answer specific questions like, what are the tax implications? Or what are the risks involved? Or you know, the accredited investor status? Or you know, what are returns like? What do I need to know after I invest in a property? And all of these things, you need to have that at the ready to be able to pass on to your passive investors to keep them educated and warm. Oh, and then you look like an expert. Yeah, well, yeah, especially if you're borrowing someone's material. I love that tip because you're sending someone to a podcast of that topic that they're asking about. So I'd love the tip of like have kind of a list of things where maybe it's a common question. Say, okay, here's a podcast that answers that question. That's cool because you don't have to create the content early on, right? So you can just say, here's here's this. And the people who, of course, created that content, created that podcast, are grateful for you to send them there. So this is just a really cool, really cool tip. So we talked briefly in the pre-show, you spoke at a, at a Michael Blanc event about some mindset shifts. So let's talk about that a little bit. So I think we could probably track the same way, which is why I'm asking these questions. It took me some serious mindset shifts to go from singles, small multis to this world. And I'm interested to kind of hear what you have to say. So what were some shifts that you made to make that change? Yeah. So shift number one was actual partnering was the whole DIY mindset. And that was really challenging for me to trust partners because I like I remembered in group projects in high school where you know they put you in a group and I would groan every time they're like group project because I knew I would be the one doing all the work and then everybody else be freeloading off of me. And they totally could because I was interested in getting the grade. Like I wanted to do a good job and to run this. And I was thinking to myself, well, if I can't trust you know, a group to write a you know six-page research paper, how am I going to trust a group of people to run a multi-million dollar acquisition? And it was bizarre. And it was really hard to change that mindset. And it just took a lot of like getting out of my comfort zone too, right? And knowing that, you know, I can't control everything. And if I can let go of some control, then I can grow even better and faster and stronger with other people than I could on my own. And I totally experienced that. We like basically hit a ceiling in our investing where we just didn't have any more cash and we didn't have any more time and we didn't have any more energy and muscles and skills to like to continue to scale the way that we were scaling which was DIY. So that mindset really had to shift. Another shift for me was shifting from scarcity mindset to abundance mindset. So a scarcity mindset is where you believe that there's a finite amount of resources So I have my pile of stuff and Eric, you have your pile of stuff and my pile can't get bigger unless I steal from your pile, right? But an abundance mindset is where there is infinite resources. So no matter how much I go out and collect and add to my pile, that does not decrease or increase your pile. You are free to go out and collect and add and grow your pile as big as you can grow it And that has no effect on my pile, right? And so I was stuck in this scarcity mindset because you have to understand, I grew up as one of 10 children and at the dinner table with 10 children, (laughs) there's not 
always <laughs> ample food to go around. And six of those were brothers and they ate a lot. And so if you didn't eat right away, the food was gone and you had nothing left over. And so my mindset was always like stressed about money or you know stressed about being able to acquire more and to grow more and and just limiting beliefs about what I could do and what I couldn't do. And so switching to that abundance mindset, I'm still working on it to be honest. I I don't think I'm fully there. It's still a work in progress for me. But one of the things that I've been doing is like writing down things I'm grateful for, right? And right at the end of every day, writing down, here's the successes that I had. And just knowing that, wow, you know, I actually am doing well and having a lot of abundance coming into my life. And then the other one is cheering for other people. So if you're in a scarcity mindset and someone else posts, oh my gosh, we just closed this great deal and it's amazing. And you know, your scarcity mindset will automatically think, oh, they took the deals. Like there's no more deals for me. <laughs> I can't. I guess I'm just screwed. But an abundance mindset is, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm so proud. I'm so excited for you. And like comment on their posts and and be happy for them because there really is plenty of deals to go around and, and plenty of money out there to buy the deals. You just have to know how to find the deals and how to find the money. And once you know how to do that, you can grow your pile as big as you want. Yeah, there was so much in there that was so good. I love this business because I said this a lot on the show. It really is. I think the majority of people are kind of cheering for each other. And it is kind of that. You kind of settle into this abundance and mindset because once you start getting deal flow, truthfully, it's overwhelming. I mean, there's so many deals that come across. It's just a reality. There's just so many apartment buildings and so many people with necessity to sell that you can cheer each other on. And so I love that you can recognize that, you know, admittedly, I had the exact same thing, exact same issues with partnering, the exact same issues with abundance mindset. You know, I'd see someone close and I hadn't had a deal yet. It's like, oh, that there's one less deal out there, you know, yeah. but in, it's just not, it's not reality. I, I think what's cool is the people who are more experienced are doing what you're saying is good for you. You know, that's so cool that you closed that. Let's go get them, get the next one. You know, that kind of thing It's really, really fun to be part of that community. So thanks for kind of being vulnerable. I mean, I think it's cool to share the path because, you know, if someone's starting out, they have those feelings just like we did. It's like, I don't know about partnering with someone. I'll have to do all the work. You know, it's almost a drag. And then coming back to the abundance mindset thing is, you're splitting up the deal. You're splitting up ownership. Yeah. So there's less profits, all that stuff. But you're 1000% right. Partnering is the way to go. You'll just go so much farther and so much faster. So very cool for you to share some of that stuff. Do you have any more shifts that we can share before I, I start asking you more pointed questions? No, let's go into your questions. I can't remember what else I had talked okay, about no, that speech. No yeah, I told you I wouldn't bug you. And here I am. So I do have like a series of questions. And, and again, there's no right answer. I ask this of every guest and there's quite a few. So take your time, of course, and we'll dive in. But the first question is, do you have a morning routine? Morning routine. Yes, I do. So the morning routine is, it's not super extensive. So I'm in a time in my life where I have a lot of teenagers who stay up really late at night. And so it's not that... You know, when I was in my 30s, I could get up at 4 a.m. and do the 4 a.m. thing. 
Now it's not like that, right? So, but my morning routine is always has to do with getting up and exercising first thing. That's what I like to do the first thing in the morning. And then I have to, then I go into, you know, kids and all all this stuff. So once I get kids off to school, I'm still in my morning routine, but I like to, as I'm having breakfast, I like to write down five things I'm grateful for. And then I also document five dreams that I have. And so that I'm working toward and then take some time to journal. And that's my morning routine. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of whatever works for you. I think having kids is just life's a little hectic and so you have to work in the way to make your life work, right? And to make your goals work. So it's really cool that you write that stuff down as well. The next question is, what books have you read or what books can you recommend? So I really love Who Not How. And that was actually pretty instrumental in helping me shift my mindset around partnering because Who Not How talks about how if you want to achieve something, don't look at how am I going to achieve it Instead, ask yourself, who can help me achieve this goal? And that's been very instrumental for me in my business, not only with partnering with general partners, but in hiring employees in my business. Because, you know, of course, I could do everything myself. And in the beginning, I did do everything myself. And now I'm really asking myself some harder questions saying, well, I think it's time to elevate. It's time to really start to grow a full business instead of just this being just this myself entrepreneur. Like I want to grow an actual business and have it, having employees is crucial to that. And so Who Not How was really amazing book for me and in shifting, helping to shift that mindset. Awesome. This is kind of a sidetrack, but I guess I'll ask the question is, you know, I think about this a lot. When is an appropriate time to hire someone? And then like, what positions are you thinking to hire first as this starts to scale? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the when question is basically, you know, if you take a look and what I, I went through an exercise the other day where I documented every recurring task that I work on. Right. And so I documented the task and I listed them all out and there ended up being like 40. I was surprised. I thought there would only be three. There was 40 recurring <laughs> tasks in my business. And then I documented my excitement level, right? Like, do I love doing this task and ranked it from one to 10? So which tasks did I love doing? Which tasks did I kind of hate doing? And then if you run through that exercise, you'll quickly see the tasks that you should be focused on. And that should be the ones that you have passion and purpose behind, not necessarily the ones that you don't like to do. And for me, it was kind of weird too, because I have all sorts of grit and I'm like, yeah, I can just grit it out and just do all these things and just, you know, just churn and churn and churn. But, you know, really, if you think about a person doing a task, if they are excited about that task, they're going to do it way better and way faster than if they're not excited about that task. And so you are that person. So I know that I'm doing these things. And I don't like doing them, so I procrastinate. Or I don't like doing them, so I, you know, it just takes me a long time to get through them and I slog through. So at that point, once you have at least 50% of those tasks that are not a five or higher on your enjoyment list, you need to hire someone. You need to hire a virtual assistant, and they are the best things, the best employees ever. And there's lots of philosophies out there about where to hire and who to hire and how to hire you know, virtual assistants. I'm not an expert on that. But I know that as soon as I hired my first virtual assistant to take work off of my plate, it was amazing. And it was hard for me. I was worried I was going to be a bad boss because I'd never done that before. I'd never been a boss before. 
but I boss my kids around. So why couldn't I boss, you know, an employee around? No, it's not like that. But she was amazing and she took so much off my plate. And then I just had my second hire a couple of weeks ago who's taking even more off my plate. So now I'm really able to elevate. I'm really able to work on the most important things that I need to work on, which is making connections, which is doing all the educational content for the investors and being available to continue to partner with other real estate and just doing a lot more networking activities. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, I really love that tip. And thanks for going through that. So yeah, that's a really cool exercise. I had never heard of that, but I, I'm a little afraid to do it because I wonder how many fours and threes <laughs> have out there. Well, then you'll know what to outsource, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. No, that's a cool exercise. Love it. Well, thanks for the kind of the sidebar. So the next question would be, if you had a coach or a mentor in the past, and if you had to pay for it, was it worth it? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of coaches. Well, so I, I was an athlete growing up and then I became the head varsity coach for the girls soccer team at, at a high school. And I always reflect on that experience, having a coach, because you know my experience on the track team, if I did not have a coach, I would not have run as hard or as fast or as strong as I did with a coach, right? Because you're there on the track and the coach is like, okay, here's your workout for the day. It's going to be five, four hundreds. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die doing five, four hundreds. And you get through the first one, you're fine. You get through the second one, you're fine. Third one, you're fine. By the fourth one, you are dying. And your coach is there pushing you on and say, nope, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. When you yourself think you can't do it. And that's the value of a coach or slash mentor, right? It's someone who sees the potential in you, who knows what it takes to help you get from point A to point B, understands your goals and can really just push you to get there. So I'm a big fan of coaches because we all have intrinsic motivation, but we can all use extrinsic motivation as well. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I I love coaching. That's why I asked the question. I think it's really powerful. And I've heard that kind of saying is like the best athletes in the world have coaches. And if they didn't, they may not have been where they were. Right. So, and even at the peak, even at the very peak where they're the very best in the world, many athletes have multiple coaches. So I love the kind of the, the comparison. Well, and, and so for me, and I'll, and I'll bring it back to business here. So I recently left my W2 job. So I left my W2 job about a month ago. Congrats. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and I'm really excited, right? But it is a big shift. It's very different working. And I knew the transition would probably be bumpy because you go from this, you know, and I had a very hectic W-2 job where I I had people demanding and pinging me all the time and I had to just solve problems right and left. And I knew as soon as I left that and went to being a full entrepreneur, there's a lot of white space, right? My calendar was suddenly open. And I know everybody's like, woo, isn't that exciting, Camilla? But it wasn't exciting for me because it was very daunting for me in how to fill it. And so I hired a coach. I hired a coach to help me in this transition, to help me work through you know, the challenges of going from being a, you know, W2, always on call, always on, on, on to be an entrepreneur where thinking is a task, right? (laughs) So, you know, spending time thinking about your business is important. And that was odd for me to have quiet, you know, stillness or, you know, to like surrender yourself to 
what's going on in the business. And so you can really elevate. I mean, you think about Bezos, right? Like, have you heard the stories of him? He makes four decisions a day and that's what all he does. And he does it between certain times because that's when his brain is at its optimal. And so as an entrepreneur, you have to allow the white space. That's what I'm learning. Right? You have to allow the white space in your time so that you can create the ideas that you need to grow the business. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I haven't heard that about the Bezos, but I love hearing like, take the time to sit in it, take the time to think on it. Yeah. that's. I think the transition will be tough. I'm not a W-2 employee. I, I own an engineering company, but it's kind of like that. I mean, it's a daily kind of thing. And I don't really know what that transition even looks like, quite honestly. But I think that transition would be a challenge to say, to go from a very, sounds like your job was pretty hectic to go to that, to switch fully over. Yeah, it's exciting, but you're right. I can see how it would be. Well, now now I fill my time. (laughs) You know, what problems am I solving? What problems can I solve? It's it's really cool that you kind of, sounds like you've gotten some clarity around it. So very cool. Um, Next question is, what's something that you have done that you would not repeat that we can learn from? Okay, this is going to be with raising capital. The first time I tried to raise capital, so remember I I'd done all the steps that I just like expressed to you, right? I did my deal deck, I had my warm investors, and I thought I was okay. I thought I had enough investors ready. So, you know, I partnered with someone. I, t- I told them, hey, I want to come on to your deal and I want to try and raise five hundred thousand in capital. And he's like, Great, that's great. Okay, let's do it. So got all ready. I was so excited. You know, first deal. Yes, here I go. I'm finally doing it. And I sent out the deal to my database of investors. And one person invested (laughs) $50,000. So I like, I negative 10x'd my goal. (laughs) And I was devastated. And I was so frustrated. And, you know, just hanging my head like, I don't know if I can do this thing because, you know, and then in your head runs all the reasons why you're no good or why you can't do it or right. So all these crazy thinking errors just shoot through your brain. And then I said, okay, Camilla, just pause for a second, like shut out the thinking errors and let's just look at your process. Was there something in your process that you did that caused this, that could have caused this? And I realized it was because of the way that I was talking about the investment. So I was talking about the investment as I need your money, right? So I was telling investors, oh, I need your money. And in my mind, my mindset was I need their money. I need their money because it was all about me getting in that first deal. It was not about the investors investing and changing their lives and impacting their families and impacting communities that first deal, I was just so stuck in the mindset of, you know, I need this for me. I've got to have this first deal. And I think as someone who's breaking into large multifamily, you always hear it's the power of the first deal. You just got to get the first deal and then things will happen. And while that is true, you also can't be desperate for that first deal because you're going to end up sabotaging your efforts. And that's exactly what happened. So I ended up sabotaging my efforts because I was so desperate to get into a deal that I talked about it completely wrong with investors. So the learning there was the way you talk about investing with investors is you don't say, hey, I need your money for this deal. You say, this is an amazing investment opportunity. 
would you like to invest, right? You're presenting investment opportunity to them. You're not asking them for money. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, everything you said there was so good. So I'm not even gonna, <laughs> I'm not even gonna like comment on it. It's just such powerful, such a powerful tool. And I and I also believe the reason it's so powerful is because it's so true. The cool thing about this investment is you're not selling snake oil. You know, you are selling something that's absolutely an opportunity. And that, that's what makes it so fun too, is because you're selling something that you believe in, you know, and I just, I really want to say like such a good tip. Thanks for being open about, you know, your failures. Well, it's not a failure. It's something that you said you wouldn't do. And what, what's also really cool is you took it and you learned from it and you pressed on You said, I'm going to do better. And yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really challenging when things don't go the way that you think that they will to not step back or get in that mindset of, oh, I can't do this. So really cool that you pressed on and look at you now. So way to go. <laughs> Thank you. Another thing, and this is kind of silly to ask this now because we've asked, we've done it a lot, but what mindset tip can you give some of our listeners to help them propel? So mindset tip, I mean, just, you know, one day at a time, right? I love the idea of the 1%, like improve yourself by 1% every day. And by the end of the year, you've improved yourself by 365%. You know, I think we get in a rush to succeed right away. And remember, we're in real estate. Real estate's not a get rich quick type deal, right? And so don't go crazy trying to achieve like the level that I am by tomorrow. You know, it took me many years to get here. In fact, I could even say it took me 20 years to get to where I am today. It probably won't take someone else 20 years to get to where I am today. But for me, it took 20 years. And you know what? I'm not mad about that. I don't regret that. I don't regret my journey at all. I think that my journey was the perfect journey for me. And now I am here and experiencing some really amazing success because I was willing to continue moving along, right? And so just trust the process. Trust that you know you make a connection today. That connection, maybe in a year from now, might turn into something amazing. And that's how it has happened for me that connections I made one day, I didn't think anything of, but then they turned into a partnership a year later. And now we have a multi-million dollar acquisition under our belt and we're moving towards more. And so just be patient. Don't be in a hurry. That's my tip. Oh, so good. Yeah, I actually had like a similar feeling personally. Like I, I felt like I wanted to get there so fast. I felt like I wanted to get that, like you said, that first deal, you know, that first thing. And it's such a good tip to just take it day by day, enjoy the ride, do a good high quality job rather than rush. And so I really appreciate that tip for sure. Next question is kind of two parts, but I'll start with the first is what is your definition of success? Oh, this is a good question. (laughs) So definition of success. And I actually was talking to my coach about this on Monday because she was coaching me about the definition of success. And is it a finish line? That's a good question, right? Is success a finish line? And I don't believe it is. I don't think there is an, an actual finish line to my journey. I think it is what it is. It's a journey. And so I think success is really having joy in the journey and being able to impact others along the way. So if I, you know, I don't have a number in mind of, you know, how many, you know, millions of dollars I want to have or 
how many units I want to have or or you know, anything like that. None of that matters to me. What matters to me is that I'm creating impact. I'm paving the way for others to follow in my footsteps. And to me, that's the definition of success. Oh, very cool. And then the second part of that is if someone asks you, why are you successful? And maybe others aren't so much. What is your response? Because I'm willing to live just outside my comfort zone every day, every day. So, you know, the comfort zone is a funny thing. We have all have our comfort zone. And if you try to live way far out, that's going to create a lot of incongruence with your brain and your body and what you're doing. But you can live just barely outside your comfort zone every day. Every day you can look for one more way to take a little step outside. You don't have to take leaps and bounds. I'm not a big fan of the, you know, what's the term where you 100x or massive action, something like that, taking massive action. Not a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of taking small action every day that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And that's what I've done throughout my journey is I'll take small action every day that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And that's how I've gotten to where I am today. Wow. So, <laughs> I love these series. Like this is so good. So thank you for being honest. I mean, I agree. I think it's, it takes persistence. And I think, yeah, you're right. You'll probably be a little dangerous if you go too far out of the comfort zone. But I actually posted something on Instagram yesterday. There was like, I can't remember the quote. I wish I, I wish I could, but basically most improvement happens outside of your comfort zone. So it kind of resonates with, with what I believe as well. It, it's uncomfortable. That's the reason it's called that. Right. But it also a lot of growth happens from there. So very cool. Well, Camilla, thanks so much for being here tonight. This is just an incredible show. I appreciate all your honesty. And I think there's a ton that our listeners will get. Final question would be, where can people connect with you? How can people get in touch? Well, two easy ways. So you can visit my website, camillajeffs.com, or you can follow me on social. I am the introverted investor on social. So please connect with me. I'd love to chat to anyone. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Mindset Podcast. If you've enjoyed the content today, please follow this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to head over to wildoakcapital.com for more information or to connect with Eric directly. Please take a moment to leave a review or tell a friend about what you've listened to today. We hope you'll tune in again soon.